Good morning. Been mentioned by Neil this morning in the Lehman Learner, but we had a great time last night for our trunk or treat. Appreciate everyone that was involved in that and guests and visitors and the members and everybody who cooked and brought something and dressed up and participated. Made a great with our community and appreciate everybody's work in that and just happy to be a part of the Lehman Avenue family and the things we're trying to do to hopefully reach our friends and neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we are glad that you have chosen to worship God with us and you are in a place where you always be welcomed. Hope you'll come back at every opportunity that you have. He's mentioned on the first and the last page of the Bible, Genesis chapter one and verse two and in Revelation 22 and verse 17. The Bible says that he is divine, that he is God, that he's the third member of the Godhead. But the way sometimes many Christians refer to him, it's as if he's merely a force or energy or maybe the plus one at a wedding where God, the father and God, the son do all of the real business. And he just kind of is along. He's mentioned in Old and New Testament in various ways with various phrases used to describe his personhood. Um, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, Acts 2 and verse 38, just the spirit, Ephesians 2 and verse 22, the spirit of life in Romans 8 and verse 2, the spirit of holiness, Romans 1 and verse 4, the comforter or the helper, John 14, 26 and John 15, 26, the spirit of truth, John 16 and verse 13. Or just the spirit himself, Romans 8 and verse 16. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit as being divine. He's not an it or force or just energy. He's as much God as the father or as the son. And yet there's confusion about his role and his work in the lives of Christians and in the world at large. Arizona Christian University did a study just last year. Sixty percent, 62 percent of self-identified born-again Christians said they don't believe that the Holy Spirit is actually a person. They said he probably refers more to energy or force or he's a, a sign of God's purity. You know, there are some people that believe the Holy Spirit, he's like the spiritual ants in your pants, if you will. He just makes you jump around and do all kinds of things and he comes over you. And he just overwhelms your will and they'll do things. And their response is simply, hey, the Holy Spirit made me do it. But the Bible doesn't describe the spirit as overwhelming individuals and capitalizing on their free will in such a way that they can't make decisions. And then there are others that are frustrated and they say we should talk about the Holy Spirit a lot more than we do. But what they fail to appreciate is the Holy Spirit reveals himself that it was never his will. It was never his role responsibility to be the star on the stage. No, Jesus says when he comes, he'll reveal the things about me. John 14, 26 and 15, 26. He'll reveal to you and recall your mind things that I've taught you. He's going to tell us about Jesus. There are some who say, oh, I'm good with what the Holy Spirit reveals about himself. In fact, he dwelt in Christians in the first century. And this group of individuals would say the Holy Spirit is divine. He gave miraculous gifts in the first century. And he inspired the word of God. But beyond that, his work is pretty much done. He's done all he's going to do. What I want us to appreciate is the Holy Spirit did not resign or retire in the first century and that he can change his function and still not fail to function at all. He functions. He does things. He's involved in our lives and in our world at the present moment. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not our theological project merely 
study and to analyze. But in the same way as this father and the son, he is our God to be adored. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 14. And he's at work today as Jesus exiting this life. He told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. But I'll send you a helper, a comforter. And when he comes, he'll declare to you the things that are to come. And the Holy Spirit came, you know, throughout the Bible. He's described in these various ways. He came and divided tongues of fire in Acts two, three and four. Jesus described him as the living waters in John seven, thirty eight and thirty nine. And when he was baptized, he descended like a dove in Matthew three and verse 16. But he came on the apostles in Acts two and they preached and they did signs and they worked miracles. And that was his function and role in the first century. He the church with various spiritual gifts to authenticate the message they preached and confirmed that they were really servants of God. And then the New Testament says that there would come a time when the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit would come to an end, but not his work. He still works. This morning, we're going to study things still doing today. It's the kind of lesson where we'll reference a host of scriptures. And so you might want to write these down and consult them at a later time. We'll camp out in some, but you have to write down these references. But it's important that we get our hearts right before we engage in this study. Because we're going to have to appreciate what the Bible says and merely accept that while at the same time not saying more than the Bible says. Whatever God gives us, we dare not assume more. We may wonder more. We may want more. But what he says is all that he gives. But on the other hand, whatever he says, we should echo and shout because it is the word of the spirit. And what he wants us to appreciate. Now, let's begin. Number one, seven things the Holy Spirit is doing today. Number one, he dwells in Christians. Now, this is where we have to start. Acts chapter two and verse thirty eight says Peter preaching to the people on Pentecost. You remember, repent and be baptized. every One of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what Peter called there the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, if you obey the gospel, one of the things that you'll receive is the presence of God's spirit. And then in Acts chapter five and verse thirty two, if you turn over there, Peter is before the Jewish council. He and John and he says, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those that obey him. One of the things that the Holy Spirit is still doing today is dwelling in the people of God. In first Corinthians chapter three, Paul says this collectively. He says, don't you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you all? He's saying collectively the spirit himself. He dwells in the church at large. God's spirit still does this today. He lives in the people of God. Now, we sometimes rush right past this and we say, well, how and what does he do? But first, we should pause and appreciate that it happens at all. It's disrespectful to assume God's presence without wonder. To appreciate the fact that God can dwell in us and it not be miraculous, but it still is amazing that it happens at all and that he chooses to do it. It can be mysterious and still marvelous. And we need to appreciate that. We sometimes rush right past the fact that God's spirit dwells in people. That's never been an ordinary thing. While there is some mention of people in sporadic instances in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a time when this would happen in a greater and grander way. Isaiah 44 and verse three, God says, days coming, I'm going to pour out my spirit on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new spirit and a new heart and my spirit will be in you. Ezekiel 39, 29 says the same thing. The prophets long for that day. The Bible says that day's come. And when we obey the gospel, the spirit of. This doesn't mean that. We should feel any type of 
Somebody says, do I feel him pushing on me and pressing on me? No, maybe you ate Taco Bell. That doesn't necessarily mean the spirit has done that. And it also doesn't mean we're going to weigh more. Somebody obeys the gospel. They come out of the baptistry, put them on the scale. Maybe they weigh more. No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean we can be assured of his presence with us throughout the duration of our Christian lives. God doesn't just want us to live the Christian life. He equips us and journeys with us. Jesus says in John 14 and verse 16, the spirit will be with you. And he adds this forever. Couldn't have just been for the apostles because their earthly lives expire within a few decades of those words. But what he meant was the spirit was going to stay and abide with his people so long as the world stands. God's spirit dwells in and lives in his people. You've been to people's house to visit and this has happened to you. I'm sure you pull up to their house. You get out, you knock on the door, they meet you outside and they say, wait a minute. And you think you're going in. They say, oh, no, we'll talk out here. And they say, look, my house isn't clean. I really don't want you inside. I would hate for you to see it that way. I don't know what you would think of me. Let's just talk out here right on the front porch. And you acquiesce and you say, "Okay." And maybe we think God's like that. God confronts us in our sin. He cleans us up. And we think to ourselves, "Whoa, I'm finally on good terms with God. God says, oh, yes, we're on good terms, but I want more. I want to be closer. I want to come and live in you. And we say, well, I don't know if you really want to see me like this. He says, oh, yes, I do. In fact, if you're a Christian, he already. As second Corinthians six and verse 16, he says, I will dwell with you. I'll be your God and you will be my people. Now, this point is more than just a theological nugget for Bible nerds and geeks. It challenges us right where we live, because the fact that the spirit dwells in us is brought up several times throughout the New Testament to assure us that our conduct matters. First Corinthians six, 19 through 20, Paul says, don't you know that the Holy Spirit is in you? And you are the temple of God. You're not your own. You've been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That is, you can't engage in sexual immorality and do whatever you want. God's present. This point should enthuse and inform the way we sing. The Bible says if you're filled with the spirit, then you should speak to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. How dare we with this reality hanging over us and in our Bibles come into the assembly and have our mouths closed. Oh, the spirits and dwelling means something is to bubble forth and to come out. And it's the songs we sing. We can disrespect him. Hebrews 10 and verse 29, he says, you can disrespect the spirit of grace and your punishment will be far more severe than those who lived in the old covenant. This is where we have to start. Because Paul says, if the spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to God. Romans 8 and verse 9. This point is so emphatic. It's just assumed throughout the New Testament. This happens that this is the reality for Christians. And the New Testament brings it up over and over again. Before we move on, let's notice a few of these. Turn your Bible to First Thessalonians chapter four and notice verse eight. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse eight. Again, a section where Paul is arguing for sexual purity, for holiness. And this is the motivation. He says, whoever disregards this teaching, what he had just mentioned about holiness in verses one through seven, he says he disregards not man, but God. And then notice this phrase who has given us his Holy Spirit. But fact, Timothy, chapter one and verse 14 Timothy chapter one and verse 14, Paul encourages Timothy to use the gifts that he's been given. And he says, by the Holy Spirit, which God has given to us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Timothy, God wants you to do certain things and you need to do those things and walk in step with those gifts. And the motivation is God's given you his spirit. Notice first John chapter three, John chapter three, 24. John 
says, if any man abides in God, he's going to keep his commandments and God abides in him. How do you know you abide in God and that he abides in us? John says in verse 24, by his spirit whom he's given to us. Notice one more. First John, chapter four and verse 13. John says, we know that God abides in us because he's given us his spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing today, right now? He's dwelling in Christians. I know somebody says, I don't feel any different. I don't know if I can tell any difference in my life. Well, more on that momentarily. But this can be not miraculous. It still is marvelous. It can be mysterious to us, but still amazing. And it is. And we should wonder at it. We should adore him. And we should all at this great reality. Now, here's number two. What is the Holy Spirit doing today? He helps Christians to pray and he intercedes for us. Romans chapter eight may very well be the most spirit concentrated chapter in the entirety of the New Testament. Paul mentions the spirit over and over again in this chapter. But when he gets down to verse 26, he says, likewise, the spirit himself helps us to pray for. We don't know what we should pray for as we should. But the spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Verse 27, he says, and he that searches the hearts knows what is the. And he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Here's number two. What is the Holy Spirit doing today? We know what he did in the first century. Somebody says the miraculous age has suspended. That's right. But what is he doing now? He's helping Christians to pray. He intercedes for us. Romans 8, 26 and 27 is one of those passages that we struggle to appreciate how it happens. But like we said on the previous point, we need to realize that it does. We can spend a lot of time talking about what this passage doesn't mean. But I want you to fix your eyes on the verses and notice what he does say. Number one, in verse 26, he helps us in our weakness. This word for helps us, it's the same word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. This word for help in verse 26, the other time it's used, it's in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. You remember where Martha says, Jesus, tell my sister Mary to come and help me with this serving. It's that same word. She needed help. She needed assistance. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He comes alongside us. He does it with it when we have those groanings that are too deep for words. Things we can't express when we're struggling to get the words up. He makes intercession for the saints. Romans 8 and verse 34 says Jesus does this. But Romans 8 and verse 26 says the spirit does it as well. And he's able to search the mind of the spirit and he can talk to God on our behalf. And notice verse 27 says he does it according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps God's people to pray today. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know you've had times and circumstances in your life when you've just been overburdened with hardship and difficulty. And you know what you should do because you believe in God and you know that we have an advocate with the Father. And you bow your head and your heart and your will to pray to God and nothing comes out. There are just tears. There's groaning. There's frustration. And the Bible says in passages like this, in those moments, our eloquence doesn't matter. We have a heavenly representative who speaks the heavenly language and he intercedes and speaks up for us. When we can't say the things, if we pray, even when we don't pray, according to this verse, God intercedes and speaks up for us and he helps us. David was there. Psalm six, six and seven. He says, my groanings were overwhelming me and my tears were my food. I was struggling. And the Bible says, oh, yes. But when that's happening, there's still a conversation going on in heaven because the Holy Spirit intercedes and speaks up in behalf of the people of God. If you're a parent, you're familiar with what we might call baby talk, right? When your child is two or three years old, they can form some words, but not a lot of words. But you understand them because you're fluent in both baby talk and English. 
and somebody comes up and talks to them and they kind of lean in and they'll say, what did they say? And then you interpret and then they say something and the child looks confused and you interpret for them. You're sort of this go between. You can understand both parties. You don't have to speak for the other party. They still want to speak for themselves. Oh, but you're the go between. The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and he also knows the mind of humanity because he is God. And the Bible says he comes in. He speaks up for us. We're weeping. We're crying. We can't get it out. The Bible says have no fear because the Holy Spirit, when you when your groanings are too deep for words, he takes that and he interprets it into God's terminology. And he can get a prayer through for us when we sometimes feel like we can't get one through for ourselves. Oh, this should give us courage when we pray. Galatians four and verse six says he sent forth the spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the spirit's cry, not ours in Galatians four and verse six. Our cry is Romans eight fifteen, But the spirit himself cries out for us. Abba, Father, that is God's spirit is praying with us and on our behalf. God wants to hear from you so bad that he opens the avenue of prayer to begin with. And then he says, you can pray to me in the name of or through the authority of my son. And when your knees get too weak. And your burdens get too heavy to even utter the word. Now, what is the Holy Spirit doing today? He's still helping Christians to pray. Here's number three. He convicts the world. The Holy Spirit is not just involved in the lives of Christians. Yes, he dwells in us and he also helps us to pray. But number three, the Holy Spirit is involved in the lives of people who aren't Christians, whether they want him to be or not. In John 16, right before Jesus promises to sit in the spirit of truth in verse 13, notice what he says. John 16 and verse seven. Jesus, nevertheless, I tell you, it's for your benefit that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But if I go, I'll send him. And when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they don't. I go to the father and you because the prince of this world has been judged. Those three things the Bible says the Holy Spirit does and he does them through the word. You know, the apostles received the word miraculously. They received the message as the Holy Spirit came upon them and they wrote it down and it's been preserved for us. But those three things that Jesus mentions and that John records are still happening at the present hour of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You take that passage and lay it right alongside Paul's conversation with Felix in Acts 24 and verse 25. What is Paul talking to Felix about? Oh, he reasons with him about righteousness and about self-control and about judgment. It wasn't merely Paul confronting Felix. It was the Holy Spirit of God himself confronting Felix and his sin and saying, you don't have God's permission to stay that way with his approval. You've got to change. People wink at this and they say, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't care about the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit, he's interested in you and he confronts us. Let me ask you something. How are you responding to the spirit of God? Another question to that would be, how are you responding to his words? Stephen looked at an angry mob of Jews in the first century and he said, you stiff necked and uncircumcised and hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7 and verse 51. The Thessalonians were on the verge of doing this. Paul begs them in First Thessalonians 519. Do not quench the spirit. That is, don't extinguish his power in your life. Receive his words. We disrespect him. When we hear his message, we know we're in sin and we just go on like it's OK. He points out our sin and we pivot in the other direction as if, well, that doesn't really apply to me. John says he's come to convict us about our sin and about righteousness and about the reality that there is a coming judgment. And we desperately live in a world that's drunk with affirmation 
And with positive pats on the back, we want people to tell us how beautiful we are, how valuable we are, how much we matter, how perfect we are just as we currently stand. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is not interested in lying to us about ourselves. The Holy Spirit really wants us to see ourselves as we truly are. And as we stand in sin, he will not pat us on the back and make us think, well, everything's okay." He's going to confront us in our sin, not to wreck us or to ruin us, but ultimately to rescue us. And so James says, lay apart all filthiness and overflowing wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted words which are able to save your soul. James 121. And as the gospel message is preached, as you hear these words and as you open up the Bible, you respond to him in one of several ways. You know, some people, they don't want to read the Bible. They say, don't come preaching the Bible to me. They don't want to be convicted. But to disrespect the Holy Spirit and silence him in that way is to pull up to the pharmacy and say, I don't want the medicine and I don't want the prescription because I don't like the way it tastes. But medicine and prescriptions aren't there to satisfy your taste buds. They're there to cure sickness and illness. The Holy Spirit's job is not to coddle us. It's to convict us. Revelation 319 as many as I love, I rebuke and I chastise. Hear the message from the spirit to the churches. Revelation 322. We need to hear his message. What is he doing today? He's confronting the world and their sin. And he's saying there is a great day coming and you can't stay that way. And well done. You really do need to change. But if we listen close enough, he also gives us the remedy for our desperate situation. Maybe you've watched TV or you watched something on your computer before. And for one reason or another, maybe you got busy or somebody else was talking to you and you had to press mute on the screen. You notice what happens when you press mute on the screen. You can't hear anything. But guess what? The lips are still moving. People are still talking. In fact, if somebody in your same house was watching the same thing in another room, you wouldn't hear anything, but they would. And somebody down the street or around the world, your TV, your computer, your phone can be on mute. And yet and still the message is coming forth. You know, we can mute the spirit in our own lives if we want to. But we don't stop him from speaking just because you turn down the volume in your heart and you say, I won't hear the word of God. You don't stop his message from going forth, but you do mute his words in your heart to your own demise. Paul told those in Antioch of Pisidia, see that you thrust the word of God from you and judge yourself worthy of eternal life. We turn to the Gentiles, Acts 1846. But the message of the cross and the words of the spirit are still entering and invading human hearts and saying to Jesus, he's your only hope. He's the only one that can save you. And you can't stop this message from being proclaimed. The Holy Spirit today convicts us as we hear and heed the message of scripture. Here's number four. The Holy Spirit seals and sanctifies. Paul lists the gifts that we've been given in Christ, what he calls the spiritual blessings in Ephesians chapter one and verse three. And as he goes through there, the last one he mentions is in verse 13 and 14. He refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of promise who's been given as a seal, Paul says. And then he mentions this idea of he is the guarantee. The purchase possession according to the praise of his glory. You know, the Holy Spirit seals God's people. He marks us. When you become a Christian, God puts his mark on you. That mark is by the Holy Spirit. And it also says he's a down payment. Turn your Bible to Second Corinthians. Hold your hand in Ephesians and go to Second Corinthians and notice two passages. Second Corinthians chapter one and verse twenty two and Second Corinthians chapter five and verse five. The Holy Spirit is viewed as a down payment on our salvation. Some translations call this a guarantee or a guarantor. Second Corinthians one twenty two says he's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal and he is a down payment or a Corinthians five and verse five. 
calls this a earnest or a down payment. He that's made us ready for this self same thing is God himself. And he the salvation to come. What does the Holy Spirit do today. He marks and seals the people of God. He sanctifies us and sets us apart. This is good news for Christians. You sometimes look at the world and you say the world's out of control. There's sin on every hand. What is God going to do about this? Oh, God's going to punish the sin. But when he comes to punish the sin, he won't punish the righteous with the wicked because he has us in two separate piles. How does God tell? How does God know people that are Christians and people that are not? Well, the Holy Spirit is indwelling in those individuals who've obeyed the gospel. And first Peter one and verse two says you're sanctified by the spirit. You're in a different camp altogether. And God can tell the difference. John in Revelation chapter seven and verse three. Don't destroy the earth, the land or the sea until we mark those who have been sealed of God in their foreheads. And then the elder is surprised as they're marked in Revelation seven, 13 and 14. He says, who are these? John says, oh, you know. These are those who have washed themselves clean and have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how it happens. When you obey the gospel and you come up out of the waters of baptism, God says, you're sealed, you're sanctified, you're mine, and you belong to my family. I don't know when's the last time you've been to Chuck E. Cheese, but if it's been a while, let me assure you, they still have the same glorious pepperoni pizza that you remember. Andre and I went twice last week in Paducah. When you go into Chuck E. Cheese, they have what's called their kid-safe system. And they do this so that kids can run around and have a good time. and They don't have to worry about anything. You come into Chuck E. Cheese with your kids or your party and they mark your hand with a stamp. It's an invisible stamp. Nobody can see you walk into Chuck E. Cheese. Everybody's playing. Everybody's running around. It looks like one big tornado of children. Everybody. But when you get ready to leave, they're going to shine a light on your hand. And only the people that have the same stamp and the same mark leave together. They say we want everybody who came in together to depart together. Nobody gets mixed up in the world and we say we're surrounded by sin you really go outside and look you go to Walmart and you say well who's a Christian how could you tell well we can't see we just look around and everybody looks just about the same but God says oh don't worry there's an invisible seal listen just because it's invisible does not mean it's imaginary Paul says there is a seal and one day we'll be pressed into his light and as he shines the light everybody that's come into Christ together and we all did the same way Romans 6 3 and 5 we'll all leave together first Thessalonians 4 13 through 18 and we will always be with the Lord and that's because he's marked us he stamped us he sealed us we live in a world of unsaved people, but Paul says the spirit of God is the identifying marker which sets the saved apart from the unsaved. And God can see what the human eye cannot. And God will keep his promises to set his people apart from the world. Now, here's the next one. Number five, the Holy Spirit sets the standard for Christian living. God's people are to live a certain way. And the way the Bible often describes this is we're to walk in the spirit. If we live in the spirit, let us walk in the spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 25. He says, walk in the spirit, verse 16 of chapter five, and don't fulfill the lust of the flesh for the spirit lust against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And these two things are they're contrary one to another so that you won't do the things that you would walk in the spirit and you won't be under the law. Galatians 5, 18. Here's the question. How do you know that somebody possesses the spirit of God? You know, people say all kind of things. I know the spirits dwelling in me. Insert something human, something intellectual. Well, I know the spirits in me. Look how loud I can scream. Look how high I can jump. Look at how passionate I am about Christianity. I know the spirits dwelling in me. 
But would you notice what Paul doesn't say in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and what he does say? We teach this song to children. Paul mentions it here in contrast to to the flesh in verses 19 and 21. He says the fruit of the spirit. You might just put in parentheses so you never get confused about this. The evidence of the spirit, the identifying mark that somebody possesses the spirit of God is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those that belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its lust. How do you know somebody has the spirit of God? Paul doesn't mention a good memory. Paul doesn't mention how smart they are. Paul says, here are the identifying marks. Here's how you know. Paul doesn't say just because you possess these things, you're a Christian. No, you obey the gospel to become a Christian. But you know someone's a Christian because they live this way. You're a member of the church. You say the spirit dwells in me. If he doesn't, you don't belong to God. Would people that know you best describe you using the terminology of chapter five, verse 22 and 23? And before we get ahead of ourselves, we might start counting them up. There are nine. of them, And we say, well, I've got the love and joy. I'm a little impatient. Listen, Paul says the fruit of the spirit, not the fruits. It's all or nothing. If we don't possess them all, we may not possess even the ones we think that we have. It's a package deal. If he operates on us and lives in us and works in our lives as we adhere to his word, it'll be evident. Jen Wilkin is right when she says the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And as we get the word of God in us, he transforms us. We become more patient, more loving, more kind to the degree that we haven't. Our Bible study, our Bible reading, our very worship of God has been in vain. It hasn't accomplished the work that it should because it's inside out in Christianity. We're supposed to be transformed and changed. If we're cranky, irritated, frustrated, short tempered and reckless, it evidences that we're more occupied by the spirit of this age than the spirit of almighty God. Paul says the spirit sets the standard for Christian living and he sets it very, very high and we're to bear his fruit. These last two quickly. Number six, he solidifies us as sons of God. Spirit bears witness with our spirit, Romans 8, 16, that we are the sons of God. Maybe you've said before, I don't feel saved. I don't think I'm saved. Well, the spirit himself in Romans 8, 16 bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That's how it reveals. It's not how we feel. Alistair Begg has said we shouldn't start worship like a rock concert. Well, how do y'all feel today? It doesn't matter how you feel. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. That's Christianity. It's not how you feel. Though feelings do matter. They are not sovereign. It's not how we feel. It's what we know. The spirit bears witness with our spirit. We are the sons of God, even when we don't feel like it. The greatest unkindness we can do to him is to refuse to appreciate that he loves us. And the spirit reminds us you are adopted. Hired us on as his employees. The spirit says, oh, there's more. You haven't been hired on as janitors to be employees in the company. You don't realize you've ascended. You're CEOs. You inherit all things. You're partners in the company. You're co-heirs with him, joint heirs with Christ. And the spirit reminds us of it every time we open his words, read them and appreciate what he is constantly affirming to us. You belong to God. You're God's children. You're God's sons, not slaves. Oh, but sons and daughters. We're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of us as have been baptized into Christ, you've put them on. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, you're heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. The spirit today reminds us if we listen to his words that we belong to God. Now, here's the seventh and final point. 
the spirit gives life. Jesus told the Jews in John six and verse sixty three, the spirit gives life. The old King James says the, the flesh profits nothing. New translations say the flesh is of no help at all. Everything in our world is telling you and me the opposite. The spirit profits nothing. The flesh is everything. Jesus says, don't believe them. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, when do I get the life? Titus three and verse five. Paul writes, it happens with the regeneration. And then Paul uses this phrase, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that all about? You submit to the spirit's message. You go down in the waters of baptism and you rise. And you've got a brand new life. Yes, you go to the same job, the same house. You drive the same car. But the spirit says everything is new. You're a new creature. Second Corinthians 517. And that happens because the spirit enters your life and gives you a brand new one. This Iranian man died this week. The news. He was 94 years old. That's why he made the news. He made the news because he is known as the dirtiest man in the history of the world. He didn't take a bath for 60 years. Don't worry, you can't smell him through the screen. 60 years, he didn't take a bath. When people passed by and tried to offer him water or soap or bath, he said it made him sick. They don't know why he didn't want to take a bath, but he just refused to. He said he liked the way his life was going. He wanted nothing of it. He lived in a little rock hut, smoked cigarettes all the time, and this was just his lot in life. And we read that, we see that, and we say, what a terrible way to live. What a terrible existence. But worse still are those who have an opportunity to be cleansed by the Spirit's words. The last page of the Bible, he invites the Spirit and the bride say come. And let those who hear come and the ones that's thirsty, let them come and drink of the waters of life without price. Revelation 22:17. And we look at our lives and we say, you know what? I'm good. I've got a pretty decent life in Christianity. Maybe that's for some of you guys, but not me. I'm good. I don't need Christianity. I wonder how many times he looked in the mirror. Maybe if he could have seen the coats of dirt that covered his face and his skin, if somebody would have brought it up to him and said, look at how you really are, man. You think you're good. You've got no idea how wretched and poor and terrible you look. And the spirit says, I am the mirror to the human heart. Would you really take a look at your condition, not just your condition, but all that you could truly be? I've come to give you life in and of itself. It profits nothing. But in me, you can profit in ways you never imagined. He's on the first page in the last of the Bible. He's not just a force. He's not an it. He's not our theological project to study. He is our God to be adored. He has a certain function, a certain role apart from the father and apart from the son and yet working in conjunction with them. He did not retire or resign in the first century. He works even now at this very moment. He convicts the hearts of those who know they're not living in accord with the standards. You can ignore him. You can mute him. But you do so to your own demise. He invites the world. Come and drink of this life giving water. And we charge nothing. Jesus says my life for yours. And the spirit points us to him as the answer for the greatest human ills. He didn't come to testify of himself. He came to testify about the one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the father but through me. John 14 and verse six. And if you hear his words, you won't be able to see it. And there'll still be something mysterious about it. But when you submit to him, he will dwell in you and journey with you throughout the rest of your Christian life. And when you're weak and when you struggle, you can boast in weakness because even then he'll pray with you and help you. Jeremy's going to lead us in a song. The spirit's invitation is for those who want to obey the gospel and become Christians or for those who are broken 
and have groanings too deep for words. We will join in with you and with the spirit of God to pray on your behalf. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and sing.